Star Trek Lower Decks is over, but we're just getting started here on Post Show Recaps. My name is Jessica Lease, and I've got my phasers set to fun. And I'm not going to take credit for that line. That was a line that they used to use at the Star Trek experience in Las Vegas. But anyway, moving on with me as always is my trusty number one, Mr. Mike Bloom. How are it's you doing, felt, Mike? It's good. It's felt like 930 years since the last time we talked Star Trek, excluding the Star Trek Brant Steel that we did. <laughs> Though it honestly has been what, like six months, really, since we last talked Star Trek, which is crazy to think about because literally galaxies of things have happened since. But we're here talking about not one, but two CBS All Access Star Trek shows as one ends and one begins. It's true, but I I couldn't figure out, like, maybe I should have started off the podcast by saying Star Trek Lower Decks is over and Star Trek Discovery is just mm-hmm. getting started. Yeah, exactly. Like, this is sort of, I mean, it's interesting programming, right? Because I think, you know, we experienced this before with, like, the first season of the short treks were airing in, like, one-month increments leading into Star Trek Discovery Season 2. But this is the first time we've really had, outside of all the TNG ds9 voyager stuff that was concurrently airing of one series leading right into the other they've really advertised the 23 weeks of straight trek so that's one reason i think why we're coming in here with a a recap of lower decks instead of episodic coverage but suffice it to say in my opinion i think no matter what your comment is about the quality of the show which we'll certainly get into they certainly packed 10 episodes of star trek lower decks with basically a 13 episode you know hour-long show that is discovery it is certainly true. There was enough in there. But I think we've kind of, over the years, as post-show recaps has found its voice, I think we've discovered that it's very, very hard to episodically recap a comedy. And I think watching the entirety of this series, I got the, I really got why we don't ever do that. Mm-hmm. It's, it's really tough outside of, you know, saying, well, that was funny. I really enjoy or that wasn't funny. I did not like that. It's it's tough to base criticism or just conversation around it. There's a reason why, you know, the Seinfeld podcast works so well, primarily because it was about banter and less so about actually talking about the comedy itself. Because, I mean, I guess what we can largely surround this podcast with, at least the lower decks part of the discussion, actually comes down to that metric. Because, Jess, I know you and I had a couple of conversations when we were talking about building up to this podcast, and our opinions are very rarely split, but at least at the times we were talking, they were divergent in that I think that Lower Decks is a supremely funny show, and you, at least at the time we first spoke, were not a big fan of it. Yeah, Honestly, I've my, I've softened my opinion. I think my first actual and as soon as I say this, like 10 people are going to shut off their podcast immediately. But bear with me. Mm -hmm. The first reaction to this when you asked me, how do I like it? I I literally said, I hate this show. Mm. And I have softened a little bit. It does pick up some steam as the season progresses. But at the time that you and I had talked, I think I was four episodes deep and I was really not a fan. And I would not go as far as to say, I think that this is brilliant and hilarious and I wish there was more of it immediately. But I, I, there are places where I think it succeeds and then a, pla- a lot of places where I think it could have done a lot better. And we'll get mm-hmm. into it as we go along. But yeah, I wanted this to be better than it was. 
that's my feeling. Interesting. Yeah. So I, I mean, I'm going to come out and say my own sort of uh, brazen opinion, I guess, on the other side of the spectrum, which is that even one season in, I think of the new 2010s CBS All Access era Star Trek shows, this is my favorite personally. And I think that also comes down to like my own sensibilities. Uh, I will admit, you know, I was a bit of a Johnny come lately to the Star Trek franchise because growing up, it was too heavy and dramatic and wordy for me. You know, even as like a kid or a teenager, I'm like, I don't want to watch that stuff. You know, I want to watch cartoons. My favorite show of all time is The Simpsons. And so when a show comes around along that combines, you know, the things that I like about Star Trek with the things I love about adult animation between like the creativity, the -the over-the-top characterization, the very quick writing, it's it very much speaks to me personally. And so I can understand, I mean, we're going to talk about how it's it's not necessarily for everyone, but I would say overall, obviously there are things that they could work on, but I was very satisfied with Lower Deck Season 1, where I would even say, you know, Jesse Gender, who is a Star Trek YouTuber, who I, I really have uh, grown to love her work in the past couple months as I've found it, I would agree with her in that she tweeted something along the lines of, you know, Star Trek Lower Decks might have one of the strongest first seasons of a Star Trek series since TOS. Now look, might not be saying much because this is a franchise that is not necessarily known for out of this world first seasons. But I don't know. I think that the show particularly hit with me and what it was trying to do. And I felt like it was at least a solid landing as they continue to fly this ship in a manner of speaking. Yeah, I think that's I think I think you've just encapsulated exactly why it hit us differently, because adult animation has to try very hard with me. Mm, and I you know, maybe it's because I wasn't allowed to watch The Simpsons as a child uh, and came to it later in life. I can appreciate certain episodes of The Simpsons for what they are, but that whole genre of like edgy, snarky adult animation, it has to it has to try really hard. It has to do something really excellent for me to respond to it in the right way. And on the other hand, I did spend a lot of my adolescence and most of my early adulthood just steeped in Star Trek mythology. And I'm coming mm. at it from, I like the dark and the heavy. And that doesn't mean I don't have a sense of humor and that I can't find things funny, but I am not used to stripping away all of the complicated things that I have come to love about Star Trek. Like Deep Space Nine and TNG are, ob- are like arguably the first true blueprints of prestige television. Mm. And I I think maybe maybe I'm just kind of in too serious a mindset to to feel like this is gonna I don't actually I honestly don't know what I expected out of this show I think mm. yeah I was I was gonna ask like because obviously this was something new you know not since the animated series which itself was like animated but definitely try to still aim for like the tos sensibilities this is really a new frontier for lack of a better term for this and like really exploring the specific like a straight comic show set in the star trek universe which is something new i I think well i this is the time to get into this then i i don't think this show knew what its audience was and i don't think i think it took this show too many episodes to figure out what it was and who it was for because the first few episodes i think almost they're trying to suck you into the star trek universe if star trek wasn't your thing it's almost i mean 
we have David Wright, obviously, who comes from the Family Guy writing staff and really kind of shaped the direction. You can see the blueprint of Family Guy all over this, but you can also see – like they want people that like that type of cartoon, but they also want people that like a workplace comedy. And you see kind of stamps of classic workplace comedies. Like I, I see Scrubs on this. I see mm. IT Crowd. Yeah, well, even like episode seven, Much Ado About Boimler, like it's basically like, okay, we're going to tackle like how to deal with friends in work and we're going to deal with like workplace injuries. And granted, right. they're in Star Trek ways, but like you said, and I think that's also sort of the MO of the show, right, is like, Taking the, like you said, the Lower Decks episode proper in TNG was about, like, let's explore what it's like for those that are still part of the adventures of the Enterprise, Mm -hmm. but not necessarily like those at the forefront. And so, yeah, I, I do think that at least some of the time... They do thrust these lower decks characters into the the face of, you know, so much daringness at certain points. But, yeah, there are some points when they choose to focus on, like, such small, minute things that it does hearken more to, like, uh, you know, early seasons of The Office, for example. Yeah, which is a fine thing to do. But it also... The first few episodes, to me, didn't feel like they had a Star Trek voice to them. And then... I think there are a few episodes in the middle there that I thought were brilliant, and Mm -hmm. I wanted the whole series to be that. I wanted them to be strange and twisted and sort of a dash of the workplace comedy and a dash of like the snarky family guy humor and then a lot more Star Trek. And we get into that, I think, the the series kind of hit its stride once we get to Badgie, and I yeah. I don't want to I don't want to drop all of our conversation about Badgie right here. But we we kind of we have little kind of forays into different types of comedy that they're trying to try up until this point and it just felt very surface. Like I didn't get a sense of the universe they're in. I really felt like it wasn't weird enough. It it could have been like they could have taken the dialogue and like they dropped a little bit of Trekno babble in it to make it trekky, but we could have been watching the IT crowd. Right. And it really when they did put a little super obscure Star Trek reference into the show. That was when they were at their best. Like there were you're animated, so why not have your whole ship populated with people that would break your makeup budget if it were a live action series? I think that right. was great. I love that we have a Cation chief medical officer. Mm-hmm. I love when they go to the farm, the caption the captain of the ship is an Edosian, because that's like that's not even regular canon. That is pure animated series and it's like hey we are also an animated series and i liked that we were pulling from that universe i like we saw gorns Mm -hmm. we saw all kinds of getting married even (laughs) i the gorn wedding looked like a party i was into that Uh, though i'm surprised i mean i guess it speaks to either resiliency or just like pure blindness of the gorns that despite there being a crash ship like very close to their wedding. They're still like, well, I guess we'll go on with it. Though you and I are both married, Jess. We know that that's very much like a show must go on type of day. Yeah, it was really... Circumstances. We don't know what Gorn weddings are like. Maybe that's part of the ceremony. They're like, oh, good. The crash ship's here. Let's go eat somebody. Mm. But I do agree that I think... Uh, I still enjoyed parts of the first half of the season. But for me, I think I fell like in like with the show to in love with the show in its second half. Uh, and mm-hmm. starting with episode six, which is Terminal Provocations... Because I think to your point, one of the things I do love about adult animation, as I put out there, is like 
the sky's the limit or even beyond. Space is the right. limit, quite literally, because it's like you could if you have an idea that pops into your head, you can draw it. Or in this case, you can use a computer to create it and you can make it happen. You don't need effects. You don't need, you know, you ha- you can have people to voice things. But that was truly, I think, the first off the wall episode of the season, which for those of you that don't remember. So the main plot of the episode is that we get introduced Sort of to like the Barkley uh, analog <laughs> of the Cerritos, which is Fletcher, who's voiced by Tim Robinson, who is just like a complete F up. Uh, and unlike Barkley, who like, even though he's socially awkward, he is brilliant. Fletcher is just none of the above and he screws things up. And then we also get uh, a holodeck creation. Surprise, surprise, goes crazy. But it's it almost takes that typical plot to like the nth degree with the uh, the invention of Badgie, who's voiced malevolently by Jack McBrayer. But I do feel like all the episodes after that, between the freaks, between maybe my favorite episode, which is Veritas, uh, episode eight, which is like this weird flashback trial structure that was so interestingly done to the entire holodeck send-up of all the Star Trek films in Crisis Point 2. Everything surprisingly coming together in no small parts. I think that the no matter what you feel about the show in general, I think the second half is substantially stronger than the first half. I would agree with that, Mike. I think here's what I think. Like If you look at the entire series as a whole, you can look at Veritas and I would say while they were developing this this series, Veritas feels like the platonic ideal of a Lower Decks episode where they – this had to be what they sold. Like this had mm-hmm. to be the episode they brought in and said, this is what we want to do. And they should have done more like that. The problem was I would guess probably high ups at CBS said, okay, that's great. You can do that, but we need you to establish, establish, establish. And so we had four entire episodes of like – mediocre C minus workplace comedy with a little bit of Star Trek sprinkled in. And we didn't get to the truly bonkers stuff. And like you said, they're animated. They could have bonkers stuff in every episode Mm. and they didn't go there quick enough for me, for my taste. And Mm. certainly there are many great shows and many great comedies that take a long time to find their footing. I would say, you know, Parks and Rec being the example everybody uses, it's midway through the second season before they know what they are. And so I have to give it I have to give it some credit for dropping some really great premises on us mid-season, but it was it was hard to get to that point. It was mm-hmm. not quick enough for my taste. I think that would be my chief criticism. That was probably why I was hating it at the point that I first talked to you about it. And I think had had Badgie been like the second or third thing we saw, mm. that would have been a totally different series. And yeah. taking full advantage of the fact that they're animated, that they can bring in weird stuff and just like throw reference after reference at us like – if not everybody catches them, it's okay. But it just, it was kind of slower paced and the characters felt like cardboard cutouts mm. brought in from every workplace comedy ever. And it was not until that point that I felt like I knew them and that I felt like I knew what the, what they really wanted to do. Because I think they had to do a lot of stuff they didn't want to do in those first four episodes. Yeah, we can certainly talk about the the characterization. I will say, you know, to the point about maybe not there being any wackadoo stuff in the first half. I guess the two things I could think of, I mean, not the Crystal Planet in episode three was not like 
off the wall bananas, but it was sort of like a an over the top take on like those typical TOS things are like, oh, we worship rocks or we worship the sand. It's like <laughs> and the- it really that to me was like, oh, were they at Rick and Morty's garage sale for that mm. episode? That's true. That was so. That's the thing as well as I think when the. I know when the teaser first aired and like they got sneak peek of the first scene, I, there was a lot of calls of people being like, oh, this really is just Rick and Morty in space. Because obviously Mike McMahon came from Rick and Morty. The animation style is not completely similar. You know, nobody's doing like the weird W face when they're sad, but there is certainly <laughs> similarities there. Um, but the thing that I would say, you know, maybe the, the biggest call to the second half of the season from the first half of the season is in episode four during the B plot when that person finally like achieves spiritual ascension. Yeah. And shit just goes crazy like yep. he glows and then you know he starts singing everything's on the back of like a, a giant turtle or something and it's just it's 30 seconds of pure ridiculousness purposely so but i wonder if that was sort of maybe an indicator of of what was to come but i do agree that i think especially like the first i would say the first two episodes especially are all about boimler and mariner specifically of like yeah. let's set up who these two are i would say definitively even though there is a main cast for this show that really encompasses not only the lower decks, but the main crew. I really do feel like this is a two-hander between Boimler and Mariner, even though we'll talk about that the, the circumstances might change for season two based on how season one ends. I, I suspect, well, well, we'll get to where we think season two is going to go. But, okay, first of all, the thing with the back of the turtle, mm-hmm. that was a Terry Pratchett shout out, and I loved that that was in there. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's very fun. Um, but yeah, I think, I think we maybe spent too much time se- setting up the, the Mariner and Boimler dynamic. Although I will say I love, I love that dynamic. I love that they are best friends and we're not immediately going to sexual tension with them. Yeah. I thought that was, it was a good choice to make and one that a lesser show would have immediately had one of them developing feelings for the other one and if they can if they can just have a uh, two heter two apparently heterosexual people of the opposite sex not be into each other throughout the duration of the series i think that's a win already yeah and i i love that they even lampshaded that in episode five right when we get the mm-hmm. advent of like his girlfriend barb and there there is like you said another path where they could go down where like that's when Mariner realizes that she actually loves yeah. Boimler and she's I'm jealous. I'm doing this because I'm jealous. Yeah. yeah. Which Barb even says in the episode, like, are you doing this because she's like, no, no, I'm just, I want to protect, you know, poor Barb word here, which is interesting yeah. as well. And that like, there is a weird friendship between the two where for a while, it seems like they don't necessarily like each other's company. But I think that's also, again, speaks to like the strength of the second half of the season where you get to see them work together more. Again, going back to that storyline with Fletcher in episode six, that's the rare storyline where it's the two of them working together instead of opposition to each other. And so I could imagine those first few episodes, you're like, why are you two even friends? You know, right. you're, you fundamentally believe in very different things, which is also a thing that Again, I feel like in episodes one and two, they, they definitely had to or tried to underline that, OK, Mariner is someone who like doesn't like the rules, but it doesn't mean that she's necessarily team anarchy. She just doesn't necessarily believe that all of Starfleet's rules need to be followed to the letter. And Boimler is by the book. And I guess they just really had to underline that. I'm glad that they sort of moved away from that in episodes three and four. And actually, episodes three and four, they moved more towards, in my opinion, fleshing out the the uh, the bridge crew, particularly like watching someone like Captain Freeman like get so obsessed 
with the Cerritos reputation and wanting to become the best of the fleet. Someone like Ransom, despite coming across as like Kirk mixed with Riker in all the worst ways, uh, you know, basically doing so because he's, he's so hyper protective of his crew. That was some really interesting characterization that I felt like we got eeks of. If there's something on my wish list for season two is that I want to see more of that. Like we've gotten those taken care of. I want to see more from the other characters. I was so excited to see like, Noel Wells and Eugene Cordero come on. And I really did enjoy what Tendi and Rutherford brought from like B story perspectives, but I feel like those characters really did not have much depth to them. Mm-hmm. And so I'm hopeful that again, now that they sort of have their their feet under them in season one, they could be like, okay, season two, let's take more risks, let's explore more sides of Tendi, let's see, you know, new sides of Rutherford rather than just have them sort of come in and be those overly chipper characters. Yeah, like the C character, the D character, basically. Yeah, I mean, that's what essentially they were. They were involved in so many of those B-plots, and they were they were fun. Like, I actually really did like the B-plot in episode two when Rutherford's like, I'm going to find a new career, and it ends with him trying out all these holodeck simulations where he just ends up killing kindergartners <laughs> over and over again. But I feel like even with the badgy stuff, like, even when they were off on their own, we didn't learn too much about them. It was more like things happened to them than, okay, they're going to show new parts of their personality to do things. Well, it's funny, Mike. I agree with you on half of that. Um, I think I have no idea who Rutherford is and how he re- he would respond to pretty much any scenario. It's just a big question mark. It's like we get to watch cool stuff happen to him, but I don't really know who he is. Tendi, on the other hand, I know who she is, but it's only because she's basically – Lifted from another sitcom and dyed green and dropped into Star Trek. She's like the yeah the manic pixie Orion dream girl. She's yeah she's she's basically Elliot Reed from Scrubs, mm, that's and she's true. dropped into the middle of this Star Trek show. And that to me speaks to some of the reasons where that I'm not responding to this as much as you are, Mike, because I see a lot of the things they're trying to do that have been done well in other series. I I think. We see some characters that just echo characters that we've seen in other places. And I think even that Mariner Boimler dynamic, you would, I would say this is not the first Star Trek comedy we've ever had because we had Red Dwarf and mm, we had that true. same close relationship due to the fact that they're the two people that see each other the most, even though they're not necessarily, they don't necessarily have anything in common. Like that is the Lister Rimmer dynamic. And. That was something that Red Dwarf did, at least for a few seasons, did exceedingly well. And some of that dynamic, I think, is lifted whole meal from Red Dwarf and given to Mariner and Boimler because it's a dynamic that works. But I didn't see, especially in the early episodes, I didn't see a lot of newness to that. Um, And then you've also got, um, I think Ransom to me was Zap Brannigan from Futurama. Yeah, a little bit. Which, but then, but they're even more upfront about like which how is itself a Kirk parody. Is. Yeah, which exactly. is itself a Kirk parody, uh, and that's something that I, I think it it took a little bit of time to get to know, and I think we've really gotten to know two characters very well, and the rest of the cast sort of well. But I enjoyed meeting the bridge crew. I think it's interesting that a show called Lower Decks still ends up spending a huge amount of time getting to know the bridge crew. Right. And this was something else that sort of bothered me about the show, which is that we really have two casts of mm. like cast with an E, you know, we have <laughs> the Lower Decks and we have the bridge crew and we don't have anybody else. We literally have nobody else. Like there's a point where 
Mariner gets promoted to lieutenant and then she's practically running things. She's like senior staff already. Where are the, where's middle management? I feel <laughs> like we need, like Billups is a little bit middle management. So when we right. see him, it's like, that's the kind of joke we want to hang things on. Yeah, like, but, like where where are the O'Briens, I think is yeah, what you're asking. Where are the O'Briens? And I think Billups is kind of the O'Brien of this series, but we really don't – for a show that's supposed to be about the people that are trapped in the bowels of the ship doing the grunt work, we sure spent a lot of time getting to know our bridge crew and letting the bridge crew still like bring the important stories to us. And even Mm -hmm. when it's like a Z grade ship that specializes in second contact, we still got that. And it didn't, it didn't pivot enough into the lower deck stories. It was just like, here are some people on the periphery of the interesting stories and we're still going to tell the interesting stories. Though I will say, I think they were a bit sparing with how about making that bridge crew like an important thing. The only one that I can really think of is the one storyline from episode five, which is more of a sea story when it's, you know, Freeman trying to solve this sort of like uh, diplomatic Kobayashi Maru of like, OK, we need to blow up this moon, but everyone has these different reasons of why they can't do it. I do feel like a lot of the main missions have incorporated uh, the Lower Decks crew into it. But to your point, I mean, if it's it's more about, you know, I guess the crossing of the cast and less so about like life inside those casts, which I feel like they actually started off doing. And it was an interesting tactic where in the first episode, they used Tendi as sort of an audience analog to be like, mm-hmm. she's new. That's let's- the cheapest way to bring a series to life. Yeah, Mike. like, let's let's talk <laughs> through, you know, what, what Lower Decks is. And we got a little bit of it as well with, like, the, the gap, the buffer time in episode three. But to your point, and maybe it also goes part and parcel with, like, just going so off the wall in terms of creativity that it is skewed a bit of like what lower decks tradition is, you know, them hanging out. We got bits and pieces of it as recent as like episode eight of them hanging around in the shuttle bay, talking about who's better con or Roga Danar. Uh, and maybe mm-hmm. those are moments that the, if you're buying into the core conceit of the show could be something to lean on more instead of being like, well, these are star Trek fans. So they much want it. They must want to see the bridge crew go do adventures. Right. And I think I think it also speaks to how are we going to pull people into the world of Star Trek if this is their first Star Trek? Well, we know that Star Trek is about the bridge crew going on crazy adventures, so we need to bring those crazy adventures in. And I think they didn't really know whether they wanted it to be about, like, what is the job of somebody on Lower Decks? Are they cleaning the conference room or are they going on a cool away mission and meeting with, you know, like having diplomatic meetings with new species? They don't really know. And similarly, they don't know what the attitude is supposed to be of someone in Lower Decks. I thought the Buffer Time episode was great, but they also – it does sort of bring about this sort of troubling idea that if you're good at your job and you want to succeed and go higher, that's something that we have to laugh at. And I think to their credit, they backpedaled this over the course of the season, but it was like, there's a couple episodes in there, like, especially when you first meet Boimler, you're like, ha ha, that guy wants to do well at his job. Yeah. What a to, loser. To quote the Simpsons, like that rod up of that man's butt must have a rod up its butt, uh, which is yeah. like the first way we meet Boimler, of him being so hyper fixated on moving up the ladder uh, that he is going to like eschew, you know, maybe uh, efficiency because I, I think another one of the, and maybe another reason why it resonates with me uh, so much is that I, I do love, you know, we talked about this with Picard. I'm, I'm a sucker for the sort of like new Star Trek motto of like, hey, the institutions that you believe in uh, are not perfect. And I do feel like maybe one of the reasons, again, why Veridos was my favorite is because that is literally the thesis statement of the episode. That is Boimler's big 11th hour speech is like, 
we're Starfleet. We're not perfect, but we're trying our best. And I honestly feel like to anybody out there, to everyone who's proliferating social media with like, this is not my Star Trek. They hate the Federation. Like the Federation's perfect. Just look at this. It's it's not perfect. And that's okay. They've made mistakes in the past. And this show is embellishing it and sort of making fun of it. That episode particularly really underlines like one hand does really not know what the other one's doing. And I think it's those aspects that I really enjoy because, again, it's it's a, it's a satirical take on this series, which is so great, but can take itself so seriously at times that sort of, you know, maybe unintentionally highlights some part about institutional worship that is not ideal. Yeah. And it it was at its best when it leaned into that, which it didn't always. Mm. And it was, I think, I think it was trying too hard to bring in too many different elements and, and relying too heavily on archetypes that are already there when it kind of breaks that down and just like looks directly at Star Trek and goes there with it. I think, I think it's a much better show. Yeah, And there there were just too many other things it was trying to do, at least in the beginning. And I think the more we get, the more we get the ones that just hold a mirror up to Star Trek, I think the better off we'll be. Yeah. And I think the Mariner character is interesting. To your point, we've seen it a bit before with O'Brien, right? This person's that like, yeah, I know that everyone wants to, you know, make their way through Starfleet to sit in the Admiral's chair. I am fine where I am. And I hope that, you know, we've got we got drips and drabs about her past as the series progressed, uh, you know, her her time aboard, why she purposely wanted to get demoted. And, and I'm assuming we're going to find out more, including maybe some more DS9 era flashbacks uh, to come. But I, I do think that what she represents is so different than outside of O'Brien, a lot of these characters that we have experienced, which are, are really about like, look at a character like Saru, for example, who is basically for two seasons has just been like staring eyes watering at a captain's chair and has occasionally touched his (laughs) Kelpian butt into that seat. But most of the time he's just, when he's not in the captain's chair, he's talking about wanting to be in the captain's chair as repetitive as it may have been sometimes. And maybe that also comes from the fact that there were different writers every episode. So there, there failed to be that much of a, a through line as maybe other series. It, It did at least do a good job of like showing that part of Starfleet of that person who yeah is in an entry level position, but they're so happy with it because they get to goof around with their buddies. And it made Mariner one of my, you know, one of the, my favorite and stronger characters in there, because I think starting off, she maybe came across again, a bit as like chaos, you know, uh, solidified of like, well, yeah, she's going to cover up Boimler with a batlet, but like she almost has her own code of things. And I think she certainly has respect for what Starfleet does to a certain extent She's just not going to be the complete, like, you know, conservatively committed, let's follow Starfleet code by the book. Screw the prime directive. I'm going to go down there and solve planet wide issues by myself. Like she has her own way of following things that sort of combines the Starfleet ethics with her own ethics. And I think I think that's a fun it's a fun character to reexamine, especially in the light of a series like Picard, which does a very similar thing. So she's chaotic good, basically. That's it. Yeah. I mean, if we're really aligning her, like she's chaotic good. Boimler is textbook lawful good. But the interesting thing is, I feel like especially by the end, Captain Freeman ends up sort of settling somewhere in the middle. Like she, for all that we saw her in the beginning, as sort of like the stereotypical hard ass captain. I do think they took some time in the, both in the middle of the season and especially in the end for her to be like, yeah, this is kind of bullshit that we have to wait through all these bureaucratic hoops to jump through. And I think she's also realizing on her own, like the Cerritos is on its own rung 
uh, in the system, right? She's making second contact with planets. She is bemoaning the fact that she is not sent on important missions. And to a certain extent, I think she thinks by the end of the season, like, I'm going to have to go out and like, you know, do if Starfleet's not going to give me this stuff to do, I'm going to do my own stuff. And maybe, you know, uh, I might, I might have to have someone else do my dirty work for me. But her own very subtle character change over the episode, whether that's from a writing perspective or just from a purposeful arc perspective, was something that definitely hit me when, again, episode 10, I think, sort of surprised us of, oh, yeah, this is OK. We're, we're serializing this kind of in the final episode of the season. Yeah, I, I, and I think it was a very purposeful arc on the part of the captain because we did also get to watch Mariner save the ship several times by just like flipping a switch and doing and knowing exactly what was needed. And then you have that conversation between the two of them that's like, oh, maybe I need you here to be able to do these morally gray things in order to help solve these problems. Mm-hmm. And I did want to talk a little bit about the Freeman-Mariner dynamic because mm-hmm. – this is something that they they joke around that, you know, we saw Wesley Crusher on the Enterprise, but you never do get this parent-child working directly in concert with each other uh, in quite this way. And I think one – this is another thing that I thought the writers stumbled on a little bit because they didn't make it clear at the beginning that the secret of their relationship was something that nobody knew about. Yeah, it was it, it was very strange. And, you know, I was just actually watching the New York Comic Con panel that they did for both Lower Decks and Discovery. And it seemed like from the way that Don Lewis and Tony Newsom were talking about it, that that was purposely done by the writers of them being like, yeah, we they purposely set it up. So like, yeah, like, is Boimler supposed to know? Does Ransom already know? And that feels like a missed opportunity to me. I think that's a fun way to like hang a bit of a, a sword of Damocles over everything of like, well, they have this secret that nobody knows about and they have to, there's this strain pressure of them trying to act civil in front of one another when really they snipe at each other behind the scenes. I agree that I think that was a miss plot wise that, Honestly, until Boimler found out in the last scene of the penultimate episode, then we're like, oh, yeah, I guess he didn't know beforehand. When we receive confirmation only then, that does feel like a miss. Yeah, and that is to your point of them kind of at the last minute deciding to retroactively serialize the entire thing because you really did have that piece of information dropped in the first episode. And then it almost never comes up again until the end when they call back to it. And I thought those last two episodes especially had – a lot of weird callbacks mm. that all of a sudden, oh, we're doing callbacks now. This is a thing now. And it seemed to me that they tacked those on at the end with finally deciding that they're going to have actual arcs when the first few episodes were really – you could watch them in any order and it didn't really seem like there was a lot of continuity to them. Uh, you get to the end and then all of a sudden, oh, look, there's the guy with the one-man show that was – boring mariner to death when she got promoted and oh here we go we're gonna we're gonna have a little we're gonna have a little echo of the scene where billups yells at rutherford and then Mm -hmm. says you know what do you think you're trying to do here you think i'm gonna let you go and pursue your dreams because i am because you're great and they 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 echo that scene again it's like well if you'd been doing that all along if we'd been consciously calling back to things that happened in other episodes all along this would be very funny it would be almost brilliant but 
to decide that we're doing that all of a sudden was very jarring to me. And I think it's the same thing with this, with this mother daughter relationship. They drop it in the first episode and you think, well, it's probably going to be important. And then when it's not, you're like, oh, I guess it's not important. And then it's like, oh, it was a big secret. Mm. Nobody ever established that that was a secret. Yeah, and there was that. So they did drop like a mother daughter episode in there with episode four, which is all about like you know really them hitting a tension point, which is weird in episode nine when we sort of like hit that beat again. Yeah, it's like didn't we already do that? Yeah, I actually really like the finale for that reason of the callbacks because I think that you know if there was something that I felt like the show leaned on a little bit too much was the member berries. Of it all, like we'll certainly get into. Yeah. It. I think there were some very fun references, particularly to the TNG era, which like is my jam. There were some times when they overdid it. Like it's a small thing, but it's being like you know when they were on the other ship in episode five, and it's like, oh, this guy's password was Riker. It just felt like sometimes they're like, well, we need to throw a Starship reference in there, so let's make it. I yeah. like I like your point before of like you know more so go for like the more obscure things that actually make them relevant than just saying yeah. like. Hey, remember this person and this person were in the TNG era so we can reference it. I'm obviously getting to like big cameos later on. I liked this because I do feel like the finale was fantastically meta. And I think maybe one of the messages they were trying to send was like, yeah, we leaned a lot on previous canon this season, but now we've almost set up our own canon. So now we can lean on it. Maybe it's a hopeful sign to me that like it'll be less shoehorned in, you know, habitual references to Star Trek plots and more so, like, now we can refer to things within the Lower Decks universe because there is a Lower Decks universe now. Right. And I think at the beginning, they didn't tell us there was going to be one. So mm. it's almost like, I didn't know this was going to be on the test. <laughs> and I would have watched this show very differently, I think, trying to pick up those things that get called back later if we didn't go seven whole episodes in the middle without calling back pretty much anything. And I think it it did hit me, like even those little pieces themselves felt very member berries mm. And I like it better when we're just kind of organically bringing in those references. And I want to be, I want to have references constantly thrown at me. I want everything they do to be a reference, but I just don't want it to be like, yeah, my password's Riker. I want it to be like, my password is uh, Hot Trombone Master 69. Yeah, well, when, and that <laughs> look no further than the ninth episode, which I think does yeah. a really great job of just like doing so many incredible things, but within this scope of like the Star Trek cinematic universe, like yeah. everything from the Abramsy lens flare to having their signatures at the end invoking, you know, the very end credits of Undiscovered Country. Like there's yes. some, it's a fantastic love letter, but it also like exists as the skeleton, not the appendix, as you're sort of right. talking about with the body of the show. Exactly, exactly. And I, I wish they were all kind of like that. Or the way that they brought Q into the series mm. was kind of perfectly done. Exactly. Like out of For, nowhere. Yeah. In the beginning, like setting it up by saying, well, we could just say a Q came through and then having a Q actually come through and then being like, this is dumb. Why are we doing this? And having it actually be John Delancey. Yes. And then having the lower decks people just walk right by him like, Q, we don't have time for your bullshit today. <laughs> <Yeah>. Bye. <laughs> that that to me, like that's the tone I wanted the whole show to be. Mm. And they didn't hit it until – episode six at the very earliest and i i just think i i wanted every i wanted every piece of this series to be that sure of what it what it was mm. yeah and i guess so speaking of that i mean i think 
one advantage of the animated piece, which we'll come into actually with another piece of Star Trek news that I think we'll talk about later on, is that you're much more likely to have characters and actors of your come back to voice their characters, right? Because unlike a series like Star Trek Picard, you don't have to be like, well, you know, uh, the, you know, Brent Spiner is this much older, so I guess we have to figure out exactly what happened with Data when we put him back in the makeup, which really manifests itself in the finale, which I don't know about you, Jess, I don't know why I was so shocked to see animated Riker and Troy, considering <laughs> that Jonathan Frakes, like, you just say the word Star Trek and he says, I'm already there. But I guess I just never put two and two together that as much TNG as they would reference, Q cameo included, that they would actually put Riker and Troy in Star Trek Lower Decks. I thought that was wonderful. I, yeah. I thought it was – I mean, we are – it is not the first time that Riker has dropped into a different Star Trek series near the end. He even makes an Enterprise joke, which I thought was hilarious. <laughs> I, it's not the, it's not the last, it's not the first time we have seen Riker just drop into a random Star Trek series as himself, that it's not going to be the last, I'm sure. Yeah, I mean, earlier this this year, he dropped, there was a season finale where he drops in with the Titan, same lean and saves the day. It's just like, it's, it's watching it in animated form this time. What if every, what if every Star Trek series from here on out includes Riker saving the day at the 11th hour? I would love I'm that. Here for it. I'm, I, I, I'm absolutely I here it. for it. I just love this idea of like, maybe Riker's like becomes the traveler, uh, like Wesley <laughs> did once upon a time, and he just hops between different Star Trek franchises, constantly swooping in. He's going to jump nearly a thousand years into the future to save Discovery at the end of season yeah. three. Like, I'm all here for, for, uh, the Deus Ex Riker of it all. But I don't know. Maybe it's just because I thought that, except for Q, they had kept themselves sort of at arm's length with, not bringing in those major characters. And I thought it was so much fun. And I mean, Jonathan Frakes talks about this on the NYCC pod, uh, panel that I talked about that, like, he was so excited because he basically got to play Riker the way he always wanted to, which was like <laughs> pompous and overblown. And yep. I feel like now being animated, he really got to lend his voice to that. Yeah. And it, it was great. I think he sold it a lot harder than I think he did in Picard. Yeah. And I think maybe that's just because of the animation of it all. And I, I thought it just even even though it was something we've seen happen before in two other Star Trek series, <laughs> it was still it it was that itself was a callback, and that was that was really fun, and also just kind of a nod to the fact that all of the Star Trek series we've seen up till now have been about the A team doing the A team things, and that then Boimler gets what he wants, which is to be on the A team doing the A team things. With somebody that we've heard of, I think that was kind of the perfect way to send him off. Yeah, well, so let's talk about that, too, because, uh, you know, there's a couple of big game changers that happen in the finale. And surprisingly, speaking to that serialization, one is, you know, again, evoking to TNG, RIP security officer. Uh, Shax is no more, though. I think he gets much more noble send off than Tasha Yar did. Uh, but he still, he ends up getting killed officially. So that means security chief is incoming for season two, whoever that may be. But the bigger one, obviously, is that Boimler is now on the Titan. And Mike McMahon confirmed that we were going to have at least a little bit of Riker in season two. Because I don't think any of us realistically think that Boimler is going to be forever separated from the Lower Decks crew. Of course not. But it, but it's a big game changing in a way because we thought this would just be a cameo, but it's going to become a surprisingly recurring thing, at least in the beginning of next season. Yeah, I, I, and I think they'll find a way to do it. And I, they've kind of made it clear that you can now 
you can interact with people on other ships. It's not, I think at the time that we had people getting transferred off of ships in the eighties mm-hmm. in next generation, it was like, Oh, you're getting transferred off. We're never going to see you again. It's not like we can call each other on the, on the space phone or anything. And now it's like, well, now that looks, that looks foolish in 2020. Yeah. Because think, all we do is call each other on the space phone. I'm trying to think of like, I guess the biggest comparison I can think of if I go back to the office is season three, where essentially Boimler went to Stanford, right? And there's, yep. there's God. And so I can imagine that just like that show, they're going to spend at least the first part like splitting storylines. It does seem like we are getting a completely different Boimler, at least in that final scene. He is so much cooler and more confident uh, on the Titan. Maybe it's because now he like actually believes in himself but if that means more interaction between uh between jack quaid and jonathan frakes i am i am so happy no matter what boimler we get you suppose maybe boimler got another one of those parasites yeah i mean that's true maybe there's another lover parasite glomming onto the back of his head though i feel like maybe troy would like get a sense of that right like oh he's in pain or he's parasitic (laughs) you would think yeah you'd imagine but i think that's fun as well because Due to the circumstances of just aging, we didn't find out anything about Riker and Troy's time on the Titan. Like they were, they were given that captainship in Nemesis, and then we go to Picard. They're like, "Yeah, we're retired now. We're making pizza." And now it's like, "Okay, now we because of animation, we finally get to see what happens in between." So that's that's a fun little part of canon that we get to explore as well. And maybe that'll inform why they end up retiring. Maybe Boimler drives them to retirement at an early age. Who's to say? Well, there you go. We have we have many ways that, that that this could play out. We we just said we don't know how it's going to play out, and then we thought of several ways that it could. So that's better than just like giving us a total brick wall, or mm. assuming that we're just going to drop him back on the Cerritos after one episode next season. I think it's I think there's a lot of possibility here, and I think it'll be a lot of fun. I I'm expecting at least one Riker pizza joke. Yeah. Like, I want him to be sitting in the mess hall eating a very tiny pizza and trying to share it with people. Yeah. And then you could imagine, like, we did get the five, six, seven, eight, but I want to see a trombone recital that he forces everyone to go to at whatever their version of 10 forward is on the Titan. Yeah, he's probably got his own one man show at this point. Yeah, exactly. So, like, I'm excited to see more of that. This does not need to become like much like, you know, uh, Captain Pike became such a big part of Star Trek Discovery season two. I don't think we need that. With Riker, but I think some flavor of him is going to be a lot of fun, uh, bringing that common element, sort of like Worf with DS9, right? Like bringing a a, a commonly known element into what is still a very new show, even though now we have a season under its belt. Or O'Brien with DS9, for that matter. Yeah, very true. Exactly. Well, here's my question then. Who do you think you'd like to see from the Star Trek universe next season? Ooh, that's a good question. Uh, Yeah, so I mean... It's it's interesting because I do I do feel like the TNG cast always gets a lot of love from it being like the most popular show, but also the most jovial cast. And I wonder if they could bring in some some DS9 people. You know, I, I think that maybe I would not be surprised, especially from Mariner's perspective, if like she had done stuff with Quark before. Mm-hmm. Um, she, we do have a Ferengi reference in the second episode, and I think you could definitely get Armin Shimmerman in there. I don't think you can, Mike. I think. I think you can't get him anymore. Oh, okay. No, I, I think you're thinking of Aaron Eisenberg. Um. Oh, yeah. Armin Shimmerman is still alive. Yeah, I, I, there was a lot of Ferengis that kind of died all at once. Yeah, but exactly. So I think he's I, still alive. you could still get Armin Shimmerman, uh, which I think yeah. would be a lot of fun. I'm trying to think of, I, I mean, maybe like, I would say Seven of Nine, but Seven of Nine's already got the Picard thing going on. So I don't want to necessarily double dip. 
Uh, but since we're, you know, starting to bring in Voyager people, maybe maybe the Doctor, I'm sure we could get Robert Picardo oh, to, sure. do, to do like a hollow thing, especially since we, with the Rutherford of it all, we can keep getting into more of that hollow mischief. I, I like that. And I, I felt like there were so many subtle nods to DS9 in there. I think we can get, we could pack in a little bit more DS9 there. I mean, just, even just having, having Shax be a Bajoran. Yeah, was very fun. And one of the things that made me laugh the hardest was Mariner running into the guy she went out with that turned out to be a conspiracy yeah, theorist. Yeah, 359 was an inside job. Yeah. And then he's running away and he says, the Dominion War never happened. Changelings aren't real. <laughs> that, that kind of thing was very funny. I, I think there's definitely room for Robert Picardo to get in there. Um, I think for sure that will be that feels like a given and there's so many things you can do with a hologram that would be very funny. Yeah. I I'd love to see Admiral Janeway up in there. Mm -hmm. and especially because she's going to have her own series. Right. So they could just be like, let's take the model from her own series and just plop it into Star Trek Lower Decks. We don't even need to copy. We can just copy paste. <laughs> well, they do so much copy pasting on the show already. Ah. <laughs> well, I mean, I Mike, I got to got to talk about the animation because it doesn't it feels so it feels so shockwave flash in the worst way. I mean, that's also a lot of modern animation, though. Uh, yeah. Unfortunately, for better or for worse, I think that it's just so cheap to do nowadays. Mm -hmm. I think that is the consequence of it no longer being like painstakingly hand drawn that it can sometimes lead to like, to your point, maybe visuals that are more akin to like an E-bombs world video. Uh, yeah, but or do, strong bad. Yeah, but I do it's think like, that, I, I think Drop I, strong bad right in the middle of this. But I do think on occasion it has the ability to produce like genuinely beautiful imagery. Like when uh, in episode seven after that, that creature, you know, takes over that ship, the Rubido, and it ends on like this bioluminescent creature, uh, you know, turning into just this giant globe of glowingness. I personally like that. I think there, there's some fun stuff with the visuals that they, that they can do. And I think episode nine is also a highlight because they're able to take advantage of so many of those definitive filming styles that it also looks distinctly different from the rest of Lower Decks to the point where even just like the cinematography that they use, you could tell is very much movies versus television. I, I liked very much when the aspect ratio very subtly changes. That was a great, that was a great little inside joke there. And uh, the bumper on the end where Leonardo da Vinci just like comes out and randomly, uh, randomly inserts himself into the action I thought that was that was very funny, and there are some great visual things that they do with it, but there are also places where they cut corners in a really big way. Mm -hmm. Like one of the things that really drove me crazy, and I I'm looking to them to fix it for the next season, is every single woman on the entire show is the same shape and the same height. Like mm. they're literally just putting different heads on them and putting different colors on them. And it 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 just drives me nuts that they're all like they got the little perfect dipped in waist and they could all trade clothes with each other. And, mm. you know, in the live action Star Trek universe, they have corrected for that. Like we have a variety of body shapes and body types. Right. And it doesn't even matter what species you are in this world. You are like a perfect size two and the spandex looks perfect on you. And 
and you're five foot eight and that's it. No, that's a very good point that I think we haven't really the men at least like we obviously have like the cartoonishly cronk level of shacks in terms of the super broad chest. But like there was definitely a differentiation in terms of right. looks and the yeah, the female models, for whatever reason, just like looked especially like looking at if you take the heads off of like Mariner and Tendi and change yeah. their skin to be the same tone, it is basically one and the same. Yeah, it is. It is exactly the same. And like they could even they could even change. They could, they could even like change heads with the captain and you won't know a difference. Yeah. And I I really that bothered me a lot because it's almost it almost feels to me like the show feels like the women themselves are interchangeable. Yeah, which is which is weird because like from a characterization perspective, they've done quite the opposite. So it, it's weird yeah. that it doesn't carry over to the animation itself and the looks of the characters. Right. And that's I think that's part of. That's uh, that's part of my other big problem with the series is like I don't think much care has been taken with certain aspects of the animation. Mm. But they they have some beautiful shots to your point and some really great callback callbacks to all kinds of Star Trek things and they've taken great care to kind of capture the right look in their own idiom but then their character design is very slapdash. Yeah, I do think, you know, when I think back to that uh, to the crystal planet again the design of those aliens were very like rick and morty slash like yes. adult swim but they I did th- and i think it got better as it went along but yeah it does feel weird that like i think the the first few episodes especially the rudimentary design of like miscellaneous aliens they were able to get more creative with the shapes of everything but starting off it was very much like human a human much like star trek design in general like humanoid creature that will just change the face up a little yep. bit so you know, I think the thesis statement of our general combined opinions is like second half stronger than the first. Your mileage may vary on the first, which means hopefulness for what's to come with season two if they take the right lessons. Right. I And I think even though my opinion is probably far more negative than yours, we are in agreement on the general trajectory of the series and the potential that it has some things that it could it could improve on and some things that it could certainly in the next season could pick up on and make a series that is not just fun, but legitimately great. I was listening to the greatest discovery podcast on maximum fun, which is a great star Trek recap podcast. And one of the hosts put out there that he thought he put out a supposition, a theory that when push comes to shove, Star Trek Lower Decks is going to become the longest running Star Trek series in history. Yikes. Do you, do you think that's a possibility though? Cause that's the, I mean, look at the Simpsons when it comes to animation. I, I am looking at the Simpsons and that's why I said yikes. Yeah. Cause I mean, so what do you, what do you think? What are the chances are that even when we're talking about season two, that this from a pure, because of the medium becomes the chance of, of having the most longevity because you're not needing to worry about, you know, actors getting older or you know people wanting to leave the show i mean it is it is a distinct possibility and especially since this is a kind of show that you can make without having to be on a set with people which is Mm -hmm. a concern right now i think i think at the moment it certainly seems like it's got the most promise for that of all of the various star trek projects and there's like a hundred of them at this point but i think the thing that maybe is not in its favor is the fact that there are a hundred other star trek projects in development right now and as soon as this one slips they're going to tank it and put something else in its place i think there's not really and i think maybe that's also why i was so negative on it from the start because i'm used to 
I, I'm really used to the show shows having to find their footing so much sooner now. Mm-hmm. And, you know, even though all of the Star Trek series of the 20th century got a lot of time to find that footing. <laughs> very much so. <laughs> very much so. I think shows now don't have that same luxury and they have yeah. to be good out of the gate. And that this one sort of followed that pattern. It's like, oh, well, is this going to be... Can it have longevity if it's not going to know what it is right out of the gate? Um, is it going to get that chance? And I think the second half of the season certainly points to that being a possibility. But I think – I don't think it's going to be this. I think mm. we will see a long-running Star Trek series and we will see something immersive and that goes on forever. I don't know if it's going to be this. I think it could be something animated because – we're in a place now where animation is so cheap to make and there's so many possibilities that you can't do with a live action show. I don't know if Lower Decks is the thing I would hang my hopes on, but I think it's setting a parameter of how you can do a Star Trek animated series. Like it, it yeah. might be the new Janeway thing. I don't know. Yeah. It could be something that hasn't even been imagined yet. I think we get a few solid seasons out of this in the you know, in the brightest of all possible worlds, in the best of all worlds, if you mm-hmm. will, I think we get we get four or five seasons of this and then we get something that either spins directly off from this or is inspired by this that is a fantastic Star Trek series with potential to go on forever. Mm, so Star Trek Boimler is going to run for 16 seasons is what you're saying. Yes, Star Trek Boimler, that's definitely it. <laughs> they ran out of suffixes, so they finally just started using well they used, they you know, they did Picard, so maybe yeah, Boimler is not is not too out of the ordinary. Yeah. <laughs> so I mean with that, Mike, should we should we maybe pivot into talking about some of these other Star Trek projects? Yeah, let's go from the past into the future, uh, even though this is still technically the future, even when we're talking about the past. <laughs> this is the future of the past, and then this is going to be like, these are people from the past of that future in the future of that future. Exactly. <laughs> yes. I, it's you gotta, you got to draw a diagram, I guess. I suppose so, yeah. Get out the chalkboard. I guess, so, I mean, Star Trek Discovery is coming back. It's been a while. It's been, I think, May of 2019 is, is, I believe, when season two ended. That was a really long time ago, Mike. That was at least 15 years ago. Yeah, exactly. It, it, it I, felt, I mean, honestly, though, I will f- admit fully, I had to look back at my notes for the season finale because I obviously I remember the big event, which is that they were jumping through the wormhole. I did not remember many of the circumstances like why or who, <laughs> or when. And I'm happy I got that filled in by past Mike. All right. Well, present Mike, you want to enlighten the listeners? Yeah. So let's let's talk about what you need to know about Star Trek Discovery Season 3. Because despite it being a third season, it's surprisingly little. Because the big thing that happened at the end of Season 2 was uh, essentially like Discovery uh, had gotten data from a sphere that this rogue AI named Control tried to yeah, get not, possession. Not data, just data. No, yeah, no, rogue, uh, rogue information. D. Yeah. yeah, rogue information, I should say, uh, about like just human history or the universe's history that this rogue AI named Control was trying to get to, what else, take over the galaxy. And so... Uh, Discovery decided to sacrifice itself by being like, we're going to send ourselves so far into the future that Control can't get to it, 
and essentially the the galaxy will be saved. At the forefront of that was Michael Burnham, who turns out to be the answer to the big mystery of the season of this time traveling Red Angel, uh, where she basically had to like Bill and Ted style be the one to put the garbage can at the police station so that it would <laughs> land on the cops so they could get out of the cell. Uh, so basically, she helps arrange for discovery, and the crew decides to join her on this. Hop into a wormhole. We are expunged of any records of Discovery from Starfleet Records, which closes that nice little plot hole as to, well, why are they in this canon when there is no record of Spock having a sister? And we can now confirm that they've officially traveled 930 years into the future. So it is the crew of Discovery, plus a few new people that we can certainly get into. They are now in a... Like, I wouldn't say a post-Federation world, but the Federation certainly looks different. Uh, If you've watched the Season 3 trailer, there is a mysterious event that happened during the time they were gone called The Burn, which basically, (laughs) like, collapsed any structure under the Federation. And so what exists now is extremely different. And so now I can I can probably I can probably start to sketch that out. I mean, yeah, I mean, based look, on things look I've at, learned, look at which characters have the word "burn" in their name slash have been the main part of the first two seasons, and you you might not have to look too hard at who the source of the burn might be. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So yeah, That's- so it's it's so uh, at this moment it seems like basically it's just going to be. It's like sort of a combination of like Voyager and this brave new world where they're in 3188 looking at what the world is. Maybe they're trying to solve a problem there. And I would assume try to get back to their own time period. And who knows if they if they ever will, considering that, again, they are now permanently gone from canon uh, in what we know. But that's that's the new world where Discovery is at in season three. All right. And um it seems to me, Mike, we've got a lot of new characters that are coming onto the show. Yeah. So the big one that was initially announced all the way back in New York Comic Con last year, which again just shows how much time has passed, was that David Ahala was coming on as a character named Cleveland Book Booker, uh, who is a denizen of this 32nd century. We don't know too much about him. You know, at the New York Comic Con event, there was actually like the first two minutes, I'm assuming, of season three were shown. So we get a little bit of book like in the middle of a big space battle when he quite literally collides with Michael Burnham, which I guess will sort of be a meet cute. My assumption is he's going to be a love interest for her because I think now that Ash Tyler is out of the picture, she's looking for somebody else. And he's probably going to be their guide through uh, through this world. But I think the bigger news, at least of the past couple weeks, is that we have not only two new characters announced, but two brand new characters really breaking ground for the franchise in general. So we have two new characters in the form of, I believe, uh, I think uh, Gray is the name of one of them. Gray Anderson, I uh, no, just Gray and then Adira. And they are denizens of the future as well. Seems like they're a partner in crime situation. They are played by Blue Del Barrio and Ian Alexander. Ian, uh, or Gray, is the first openly trans character in the Star Trek franchise. And you can put an asterisk on that because we'll talk about the trill of it all. And Adira is the first non-binary outwardly character in the Star Trek franchise. And I think it's absolutely fantastic in a a series that from the very beginning pushed the boundaries of inclusivity in pursuit of a perfect future. 
it's it maybe you know should have happened a while ago, but I'm I'm so happy it's happening now. Yeah, I'm I'm very excited to see this as well, and I think I think having the non-binary character be a trill is especially interesting because of the way that gender has been handled with trill mm-hmm. characters in the past. And it's got to be something that happens like on the trill planet would probably happen more often. Yeah. But, well, and that was even, that was even touched upon in yeah. an episode of DS nine, right? Where, right. you know, Curzon well, Dax had become Jadzia Dax yeah, and Jadzia Dax one consorted with a previous female lover, yes. despite the fact that, you know, and Jadzia Dax even showed throughout her time on DS nine that like she was open to romancing basically anybody. Pretty much. That was, that was her thing. But you, you not only you had that very famous episode that had like one of the first same sex kisses on television. And you, the remarkable thing about that episode is she says, I think I'm going to go back to my old lover. And it's not even nobody ever questions that it's two women. It's, well, that's a problematic thing because you're a trill and you're not supposed to go back right. to your old lovers. Nobody ever says that's weird that it's two women. And this was the nineties. So that's, that's especially remarkable. But you also have, you also just have this overarching thing with Jadzia where you, I've seen like, I've seen people make memes out of this recently, actually, where you see, you see someone say to her, Oh, Curzon Dax. And she's like, No, I'm Jadzia now. Oh, Jadzia Dax, my old friend. And yeah. it's not even something like nobody says, Well, you're a woman now, so you're not as cool as you were. Or how could you, you know, you're Curzon, you're not Jadzia. Uh, I'm just going to keep calling you Curzon. Right. It, it's, it's so, it's so normalized. I it's think, so the normalized. Yeah. And I, and I think part of that is because of the institution of the trill, which I'm so glad they expounded on outside of that one TNG episode into making it like a full fledged DS9 thing, uh, because it is such an interesting thing. But because this species exists, nobody blinks an eye when it happens. And I'm intrigued by, you know, this will also be, I'm, I'm, correct me if I'm wrong here, Jess, like the first trill character to really appear in a large capacity since the Dax of it all in DS9, which begs the question, could this character be Dax? This character is not Dax. That's you don't think too so? that's too much of a well, first of all, we know who all the Dax symbionts are. True, but they do love relating characters to other characters, Jess. <laughs> you know, they might they you know, they might know Dax, but you know, we've covered like canonically and non-canonically, we have met into the ground every Dax symbiont that there was. Mm-hmm. Um, every host of the Dax symbiont, I should say. I don't think that's the case, but I think it is going to be kind of fun to have another trill on the show. And we, there is a trill, like there's a trill background character on Discovery who appears sometimes. Um, I do not recall what her name is, but I've clocked her because, you know, I was, I was a big Dax fan back in the day, and mm-hmm. I'm always happy to see more trills. But I think there's a lot of ground that you can cover from a more from a more enlightened eye in 2020 than you could have in 1995. So I am excited to see them go back there and talk about the ramifications of that species doing things the way they do it. Speaking of, you know, the LGBTQ of it all, I do think – while a lot of character threads were sort of resolved back in season two, we we got to talk about the Colbits of it all, because season two had Hugh coming back from the dead where he was sort of trapped in the mycelial network. <laughs> uh, and then he, he came back, uh, was markedly different. And, you know, the finale ends with 
Stamets being like, yeah, after this, I'm going to go off and do my thing. Obviously, he's still on the ship. And there was this scene that he fell into a coma. And Culver basically tells him, like, just so you know, like, you're by everything. You were right. Like, I want to be with you again. Do we expect Colbert's drama? Will they, won't they, when season three picks up? Or do you think they're going to askew that uh, to more so just explore life in the 3200s? I think they're going to have a lot on their plate, Mike. But yeah. I, I suspect they're going to have to have at least one conversation about this because you can't just like have them be like, oh, we're in love again. The end. I think too much has happened and they did kind of leave that dangling. So I would suspect there's going to be something that the two of them are going to have to go through together in order to come out the other side uh, back together and back as one like cohesive couple. Mm-hmm. But I in fact, I think they probably get their own episode to do it or at least the B plot. I yeah. think some adventure they go on together or like they get locked in something together. Like you've, you've seen what strange bedfellows, like what strange friendships have arisen from people being locked in stuff together. Yeah. Cue the turbo lift malfunctioning. Yeah. Like they're going to get stuck in a turbo lift together and they're going to fall back in love. And that's how it happens. I don't think we just like, Oh, there's the married couple and they're back together. We, we got to see that happen somehow. Well, speaking of actually of the stamets of it all, I mean, we really I know this is a, a picking point you and I have with season two of like the 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 spore drive of it all of like, all right, they swear they're not going to use it anymore, but now they're totally using it. I mean, do you think that the, the spore drive is going to come into full use here? Or do you think it's officially retired? Well, I think they're probably, you know, it's the 3200s. I think everybody has a spore drive now. So it's That's not true. And then you know what? That's well. That's interesting. They're, they're going to Mister Fusion it, Mike. They're going to like pick up something so that Stamets doesn't have to hook into it anymore. Yeah, but it could be a thing where I know that these people are removed from the record. But like, who knows? Maybe one of them like became such a big figure that like they have statues of them now. Oh, so you know? you're Bill and Tedding it now. Exactly. Or like, you know, again, I've been watching the Arrowverse. That's sort of the thing with like Ray Palmer in Legends of Tomorrow of like, you're the Paul Stamets. Like you invented (laughs) this. You know, I can't believe it's like I'm meeting a forefather of my sale technology. Again, probably not going to happen because for all they know, Paul Stamets never existed. But I think I think it's an it's an interesting way to go of like maybe the impression because it also seems like at least what book was implying in the teaser that I saw is like because you left this is what happened. So again, going back to the burn burnum of it all, maybe it was something that Discovery outright did, and their mission is going to be maybe not trying to correct it, but trying to fix the present to make it at least a little bit better. That's that's also interesting, Mike. I it it sort of seems to me that what I don't understand is did they excise all mentions of Discovery from the canon? Or are all of these people suddenly, um, to borrow another Back to the Future quote, erased from existence? Yeah, is everyone looking at pictures of like, I'm posing with Detmer, but now Detmer's disappeared from it. Yeah, we photoshopped, we sh- photoshopped Michael Burnham out of all of this, of, of all of Spock's family portraits. Which they did, it's seemingly. Yeah, <laughs> Spock's not allowed to talk about his sister. It's like, like Hermione at the beginning of Deathly yeah. Hallows Part 1. Just like zap everybody out of every family portrait and they're not allowed to talk about all these people that they knew. And like Pike's not allowed to talk about them on his new ship Um, because that kind of changes the equation too. Like when they get to this new world, if it's something they've done, do people even know that they were them? Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, that's very true. Uh, and also maybe maybe they'll be dis- I'm assuming they'll be descendants of people. You know, I can imagine that some people left kids behind, which I would say is a good opportunity to do what I feel like is maybe one of the still major misses from Discovery for me, which is like I think they're very clearly trying to build out an ensemble with the entire bridge crew. But to be candid, there are like four or five people that I could not give a lick about at this point. <laughs> and so it's either to me, it's either like either just reduce their coverage, you know, like you said, like sort of O'Brien them to not necessarily make them feel like they're part of the big cast photo necessarily or give storylines to Owo, give storylines to Detmer. Because I think the Arium stuff like would have been so much more effective had she been, you know, an actual character in the yeah, show until I, those two I episodes. That. that felt like a backdoor pilot. Yeah, to the Arium show that lasted two episodes. <laughs> and then she died. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I, I'm hopeful that maybe with a smaller focus as well, like you can't you can bring in new characters, but you're not looking that much to other like big Starfleet or other previous existing characters to bring in you can now focus on developing yourself as a show which i know we were both very excited about when they went this direction at the end of season two like yeah focus on your find on your own cast I, I, if you're going to build out this bridge crew like have us care about some of these people at the helm detmer's the one that we give the most care for and that's because like she was involved in the tragedy of the shinzo uh and basically like is perennially has an axe to grind with michael burnham for making her that way yeah, and I would love to see them actually go there with it. Yeah. And they never, they never really, it, it's almost like they forget everybody is there. And then all of a sudden they're like, Oh, oh shit. We were supposed to do something with that character. All right. Give him an episode, throw him in there, like give him the plot. And that's not really how it works. And I think they need to go back to their roots and look at how, look at how the previous Star Trek series handled this because I think TNG handled it very well. Like, the way that you had O'Brien be like a guy that was running the transporter for the first couple of seasons. And then, mm-hmm. you know, he gets married and he has a kid and he shows up and he's there, but he's not in the foreground all the time, right. like surface him to have a B plot and then go away. And I think DS nine did that. Uh, they would give arcs to characters who would like show up on a couple of away missions and then they'd be the red shirt that dies. Yeah. Exactly. I, I want to, yeah, I want to see more of that rather than just kind of like, uh, you're not even, you don't even know who this person's name is unless you're a deep nerd. And mm. then all of a sudden, hey, this is Arium. Look, Arium. Hey, Arium, what are you going to do now, Arium? And like <laughs> drill her into our heads for two whole episodes to kill her off. That's right. Not yeah, cool. yeah, don't Nikki and Paulo us. That's basically right, what, right. what I'm That's, saying. Yes. So here's and here's another big thing is we sort of know, even though we're going so far into the future, we know the end point for Discovery the Ship, right? The short trek Calypso, which they officially said was canon, said that a Discovery was essentially abandoned. Do you think, Jess, that this is the season where the titular Discovery vessel gets abandoned by the crew? I would guess that our season arc takes us. Like, we have a quest. We have to figure out how to fix this burn, how to help the people that we've run into, and how to get back to our own time. And whatever solution it is that gets them back to their own time, I suspect we do it at the end of the season, and Mm -hmm. it probably involves leaving the ship behind. Mm. And so it could be like, I'm totally... Let, this is going to be a line in the season finale if that happens, I swear. Discovery is not a ship. Discovery is a people. The real discovery was the friends we made along yeah, the way. 
and and so, but I do think at least the show's title could be very easily repurposed, right? Because like right. Discovery is the name of a ship, but it's also the name of a concept. Uh, okay, oh, now, you just blew my mind. You, it could be us discovering new things and exploring new things, which again I like much more than like, hey, let's get involved in TOS canon when we don't necessarily need to. So I, right. I agree. I would not be surprised. Uh, you know, I, I think we're we're expecting at this point that this is going to be like a one and done season within the deep, deep future. Maybe they'll surprise us again. Maybe they'll go full Voyager and they just spend the rest of the series exploring thirty one ninety nine. But it should and be it should hoping, be a really interesting time. Yeah, hoping each time that their next leap will be the leap home. Uh listen, maybe maybe Archer will zap in and be able to <laughs> save them Riker style. Yeah, maybe. I, I mean, Riker did that to Archer, so. Exactly, you, know, you pay it forward, right? I think, that's, yes. I think that's sort of like what Riker inspires. Like he talks to Mariner and Freeman. It's like, okay, now you need to do it to someone else. Yep, it's it, yeah, it's the weirdest pay it forward ever. Yeah, it's it's an interesting thought, Mike. I I don't know that that feels really that feels really hokey to me. It feels like something that Star Trek likes to be literal about these kinds of things. So I I don't know if I see that happening, but it is possible that we are now in the future forever. It's interesting that if we think Calypso is canon. Calypso involved the ship having been abandoned for a thousand years and right. then sort of rediscovered. And it does not seem that that is what happened to this ship over the past thousand years. Right. So is it so, another thousand years in the future? Yeah, maybe. And it could be a thing of like, they're just really so. Well, I mean, when I talk with Michael Shabon about it, he was honestly like, yeah, I just pick like really, really far in the future for fun. He and then he incidentally causes like the last part of Star Trek, the Star Trek timeline, chronologically speaking. So, yeah, it could be a thing where like this is 4200, you know, when Calypso takes place, because I agree it's it's at least had the wear and tear of being abandoned for a thousand years. So unless they flat out just like abandon, unless maybe there was some sort of time remnant created of discovery when they Mm. went into the future, they would have to leave it. And then it's left for another millennium. And then Calypso happens. Yeah, they're saying it's canon. I'm just trying to figure out exactly how we fit it in there. But yeah, it could have Picard maneuvered itself, I yeah, suppose. Yeah, exactly. Like to yesterday's Enterprise style. Yes. Now there's a parallel dis- there's a parallel discovery and that's where Calypso takes place. Sure. Yeah, I'll I'll take it. Yeah, and then, but then it has to it has to go through with killing itself to preserve the timeline. And for some reason Shooter McGavin's there. Ew. Yes. <laughs> Uh, but well, sh- should we talk about some other Star Trek news? Because I mean, obviously, it's been a, it's been a, even though it's only been six months since we last talked, there has been so much fun new stuff announced. Aside from the fact that apparently Star Trek Section Thirty One is still happening at some point. Yeah, I I don't know when they're going to get around to doing that, but it's a thing. And we also got the news that there's a green light uh, for a Captain Pike series called Strange New Worlds. Yeah, which I'm intrigued by. I think, you know, that is really, I think, throwing red meat to those that are like, I miss TOS. Uh, I think like they we saw it at the end there. We've seen a couple of short tracks. I believe they have said that it is going to be episodic instead of serialized, though maybe they'll pull a uh, lower decks and like do a backdoor serialization at the end of it. But I think Kurtzman, I can imagine this is really like them saying, okay, if people are complaining so much about how new Trek is nothing like what they've seen before, then let's give them something that they've seen before, but just in a more, you know, 2010s light with maybe some, some more, uh, you know, timely writing and fun new characters. Yeah. Well, I I think this, entire thing would not have been possible were it not for Anson Mount totally blowing it out of the water. 
Yeah. Oh, absolutely. This was not a series that they could have done. I think anybody else in that role, this series is a no-go. Like, it sucks. But that they've got him, they need to keep using him. And since they pretty much booted him into space on Discovery, they need to give him something else to do. And I'm glad that this is really happening. Plus, now this is, I mean, if we're talking about filling in timelines, sort of like what they did with Riker and Troy and Lower Decks, now we sort of get to fill in the time. I mean, he knows what's going to happen to eventually with the Delta radiation, but now we get to see what happens between basically like the cage and the menagerie in a manner of speaking, like what are, what are the strange new worlds that he gets to go to? I would also say it's also a fun opportunity to see, you know, Ethan Peck as Spock. And I'm happy. It only gives the opportunity to find out more about Rebecca Romaine as number one, who really, I mean, the joke was that she was purposely enigmatic, but now we get to find out more about her. You know, if they're going to do a three hander, sort of like what they did with TOS, I think I think it's a fun opportunity, though I will agree with you that I would not be nearly as jazzed for it if it wasn't Anson Mount as Captain Pike. Yeah, like I will legitimately be excited to watch this now. And even though I feel like Rebecca Romaine is basically going to be her character from The Librarians, but <laughs> in space, that's how she's playing number one so far. And mm-hmm. I'll, you know, I'll, I'll watch it. I, I, I think she's great. I think obviously Ethan Peck is great. Uh, and we know that it's got an expiration date. Like, it can't go on. This is not going to be the longest-running Star Trek series ever. Yeah, they're not going to do, like, a How I Met Your Mother. Like, this season will take place over the course of one week before the Delta radiation hits. Uh, yeah, and I, I think that... Well, actually, speaking of Rebecca Romaine, it is astounding to me that we have a married couple appearing on different Star Trek series in Rebecca Romaine and Jerry O'Connell. Well, it's not unprecedented, I suppose, but I love... I love seeing the two of them um, in doing their own separate things very well. And I, I wouldn't have known that was Jerry O'Connell had I not no. looked it up. No, he has, he has a, a more nasally voice than either I remember or he's definitely putting something on. Because that did not sound like the Jerry O'Connell I remember. Yeah, well, the Jerry O'Connell I remember is the fat kid from Stand By Me, so that's don't ask me. Speaking of Will Wheaton, well, that's another one, actually. I'm, not, <laughs> I'm very surprised that Will Wheaton has not made, not as Wesley Crusher, but like his own cameo in some way. Like they brought him like, they brought him various Star Trek actors, like the, the actor who did Martok, I think, played a role in Lower Decks. Kenneth Mitchell played one. So I'm surprised they didn't grab Will for, for, for the first season, but maybe they were holding out. Yeah, I, I bet he'll be in the second season in some capacity. And if there's a way that they can put him with Jerry O'Connell and call back to Stand By Me, yeah. this will automatically become the greatest Star Trek series of all time. They, they have to, right? Like, come, it's right there. It's right there. Maybe, yeah, bring in a, maybe bring in River Phoenix, Joaquin Phoenix's new baby. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was, I was going to say, there is no River Phoenix anymore. Oh, wait. Yes, there is. Yeah, just bring in like a baby. One of the baby head freaks on Lower Decks <laughs> can be named River Phoenix. I, I love it. There's no more fitting tribute, Mike. Well, and speaking of callbacks, we got to talk about something that was announced as recently as yesterday when we're recording this. So Star Trek Prodigy is another animated series that's coming to Nickelodeon, uh, which is about a group of kids discovering like a derelict Starfleet vessel. Maybe it's Discovery. And they're going, they just go on adventures in the cosmos, but they're going to be joined by like their requisite adult babysitter. And that adult babysitter is Captain Catherine Janeway. So... I didn't get that part, Mike. Is she like the nanny to their Muppet babies? Yeah, like that's what I'm trying to figure out. It seemed like from what I I saw that maybe like she's the captain, but she's also like, I think the, the child wrangler a little bit, right? 
Is this like when Picard got stuck in the elevator with all those kids? <laughs> yeah, they're all going to be singing Frere Jaca by the end of it. Oh, dear Lord. <laughs> so many turbo lift stories. So yeah, this is really interesting. I mean, Janeway, so the last time we saw her canonically was when she actually appeared alongside Picard in Nemesis when she was an admiral then. I don't know how she got to this point unless this is sort of like a prequel to that period of her life. Maybe she sort of is in her own like Picard milieu and said, like, I gotta, I gotta, you know, get some more excitement in my life. Let me follow these kids around. I don't know if this is a situation where like the ship goes rogue and they're trying to get back. That might be PTSD for Janeway. Uh, I don't know. I, I had a lot of uh, my own PTSD and I tweeted about this because in the 90s in Nickelodeon, there was a show called Space Cases, which mm-hmm. I did watch where it was a bunch of kids like got onto a spaceship that took off and they're trying to find their way back home, which was essentially Star Trek Voyager for kids. And so it really does come full circle. And now there is a Nickelodeon Star Trek series featuring the captain from Star Trek Voyager. Well, and to bring it even fuller circle, Mike, my first exposure to Star Trek was watching the animated series on Nickelodeon. Oh, interesting. So they they reran it um, in the late 80s in the afternoons on weekdays for quite a while. I think I've seen every episode a couple of times at this point, but that was my entry point into the Star Trek universe. Yeah. So, I mean, and this also speaks to obviously, you know, in the time since as well, CBS Viacom came under one umbrella. So like, don't be surprised that this becomes successful, that there might be more commingling, but are you, are you excited for a return to Janeway, albeit in animated form? I have to see it. I feel like, Almost every scenario you just put out there as something Janeway could be doing in this show is deeply disrespectful to the character, and it's not a very nice thing to put her through after she did all that stuff for Voyager. Like, it's it's not cool, man. Like, she's an admiral. Show some respect. She deserves you know. a vacation. Yeah. I mean, even Picard, it's like, he brought that on himself because he rage quit the Federation, I, I think unless you have Janeway on a similar trajectory, like maybe she heard about what happened to Picard and she quit in solidarity. Mm. I don't know what I don't know how you force that in unless like is she directly related to one of these one of these children and she feels like she's responsible for that child and their friends? Or is she just like what if she's just like on screen when they activate the spaceship and she's mm. like you know, she's communicating with them like Chrissy from Three's Company in season three. Um, I I don't know. It's and it also it doesn't say that she's necessarily starring in it. It just says she's re- she's reprising her role. So mm. is she going to is she going to Riker it up here? Right. She could just come in. Maybe she'll come in and save the kids like, oh, no, we're done for. Wait a minute. It's me, Catherine Janeway here to save the day because. Yeah, it's an interesting one because, I mean, if they really built her up as, like, the lone adult, it's an odd place to put her in. But we'll see. I mean, that's another series that, much like Section 31, had been promised for a long time. That information has been revealed, but I don't know how much closer we are to having that happen. That being said, you mentioned before, just due to the production, there is a much more likely chance that this comes out before Section 31 or even Strange New Worlds in terms of new Star Trek series. Yeah, I I think... I think we're going to see a lot more animation across the board, not just in Star Trek, but certainly also in Star Trek. 
Yeah, and I think also even if you look at like short treks when we had those two animated pieces, I think they realized those worked well. So I would not be surprised if they roll another batch out there as well because now they've they've reached the end of the current Star Trek stuff that they had in the repository, right? They're three series in one year, but Lower Decks is obviously the one that they can work on. Maybe if they, you know, follow certain precautions like other movie and TV sets are, they could work on stuff like Picard and Discovery, which I believe have both been renewed. But it's it might be a while before we get more, you know, very new Star Trek in our lives. So let's take advantage of sort of like the binge eating we're doing now uh, because we won't have a meal for a while. It's true. We better like save up some fat because we got to hibernate. Exactly. But we won't be hibernating, Jess. We're going to be back weekly for the next 13 weeks, taking us through the beginning of 2021. It's nice to have something to do for the entire rest of the year. I feel like it's so hard to plan ahead these days. Yeah, it is a little weird. You know, you would think that, okay, you'd end it. uh, I believe the finale, because this is 13 episodes, is scheduled to air on January 7th. Uh, The second last episode is literally on New Year's Eve. Like, you would think they'd want to plan it for the end of 2020, but... I, but I think with this the streaming aspect of it, they're sort of just like, screw it. We don't really have a network schedule to adhere to. Let's yeah, run a little bit into 2021. Also, Mike, what are you going to do on New Year's Eve this year? Go out? No, watch Star Trek. Exactly. Like, everybody's going to watch Star Trek. That's what the cool kids do now. We're all inside. Yeah, so 13 episodes. Though we'll see. I, the past two, uh, or I think, I, I know at least the season two, they extended it another episode because the finale was just so big. Maybe they'll do the same thing here. So maybe we'll be going into mid-January, but we're going to be in your ears for the next 13 episodes at least. Yeah, and I, I for one, am very excited, Mike. I think this is going to be, they, they ended last season on such a definitive note and on such a note that opened up so many possibilities that I think no matter what happens this season, it's going to be very different from what we've seen before. And it's going to be a lot of fun to talk about. Yeah, I am really excited. Uh, just re-exploring this discovery supplementary material going into the season made me so excited because this, I think we talked about this during our, our season two finale recap. This is essentially a, a soft reboot of the series, putting it in a brand new setting with characters that we're familiar with. And that makes me extremely excited. I'm intrigued to see how they approach like a not Federation list, but like broken Federation world. You know, Kurtzman and Michelle Paradise, who's one of the new showrunners, said that there are coincidentally some very relevant storylines nowadays, uh, which should be very interesting. We sort of touched on that with Picard as well. Some fun new characters to get into. So like there is a world of possibilities, much like we ended lower decks with that i'm very excited to explore here with the start of discovery with everybody yeah it's it's definitely going to be great so mike is that the only thing on your calendar these days or what else is going on it's interesting that you say like oh i'm glad there's something to fill out the rest of our year because you know wait no (laughs) yeah even the two of us are going to have our own new series to talk about because you and i along with rob sister you know are going to be talking about the amazing race which premieres the day before star trek discovery (laughs) season three does so you and i are going to be nice and busy so if, if you want uh some reality tv some very pleasant reality tv and some globe trotting instead of a galaxy trotting be sure to check that out on the rhap main feed other than that i'm finishing up covering big brother over there with liana boris as well as doing interviews for parade.com here on post show recaps of course josh wiggler and i are going down the hatch we're making our way through the middle of season three at this point and that has been a lot 
of fun. We go back while this show goes forward. And this season for Star Trek Discovery, I've been doing it for Lower Decks and Picard. I'll be doing writing for CBR.com. That includes episode recaps, breakout pieces, theory pieces, some interviews. So be sure to check that all out if you want some stuff that I will probably also repeat on the podcast as well. And you can follow all the stuff I'm doing in many, many worlds at a Mike Bloom type. Yeah, you got you almost need your own podcast feed at this point, Mike. <laughs> Just a Mike Bloom specific feed. Yeah. That would feel like the most like, I don't know, egotistical thing. Uh so therefore I will not do it, but maybe someone can curate that at some Somebody's, point. Somebody's now we've put it out there, someone's gonna do it for you. Yeah, though I think that's interesting though, to have it like based on personalities, even outside of myself. Just like, hey, let's if you want to listen to this person's voice for some reason for hours at a time, here's a playlist of every single podcast hey, they appear in. It's possible somebody's has like a newborn that will only be calmed by the sound of your voice. Oh boy, I fear for that newborn might be hard of hearing considering how annoying my voice is. So <laughs> good good luck to that parent. Yeah, the the downside is that the newborn is also like disturbed and agitated by the sound of my voice. So mm. they're pretty much pretty much hosed when they put on this podcast. Yeah, anyway. exactly. Or they'll have to like to, to like to only listen to half of it, uh, but not half in terms of down the middle, half in terms of split the audio and then <laughs> listen to your side and then listen to my side. Yeah. Well, I, I'm sure that if somebody has this specific, this very hyper specific hypothetical problem, they can just call you and you'll just talk at the child. On your own time. I'll make that offer. I absolutely will. And you know, you can make that offer firsthand to me on our new post-show recap yes. patron Discord. <laughs> this is a, that was a very nice segue, Mike. I think that's worth <laughs> noting. You can go to postshowrecaps.com slash Patreon and you can pledge uh, $5 a month, $10 a month, or $15 a month. And this gets you access to extra podcast content. Um, curated and mostly hosted by our very own josh wiggler mm-hmm. um we are also at the ten dollar and above level you can have access to our patron discord which is a chat area where you can connect with like-minded fans about just about everything we have a snacks thread that's especially fun mm-hmm. i think worth it on its own at fifteen dollar level you get all of those things plus you get a hat right out of the gate and three months from now you get another hat and then every three months Thereafter, you get more swag, and the swag is TBD, but we are working very hard on it, and it's going to be really fun stuff. Two I hats in six months. That's an amazing deal. Mike, I should mention one of the hats is a wombat hat. Oh, that's a good call. Good call. Yeah. Good call. Like, I feel like that's a draw all on its own. Like, oh, you don't absolutely. Have a people, people slave away over song parodies for weeks at a time to get that wombat hat, and now you get to get it just by becoming a patron of Poster Recaps and supporting us to make sure, you know, the lights stay on here and we don't go into red alert anytime soon. Yeah, it's true. I don't want to have to end up getting sucked into the future just to make some ends meet. Um, and... I will uh, throw out one more plug for our Amazing Race coverage over on RHAP, which is going to be very fun. I feel like the connecting thread, apart from you and I, Mike, is <laughs> they're about going out and exploring strange new worlds. I think that's something that happens on both of them. And also, Phil Kogan appeared in a fan-made Star Trek movie. So, Yeah, talk about it's a one degree of separation. Uh, I mean, and- as we know, Mike, that guy will show up for anything. Exactly. They will not muck around, truly. Uh, and while you're talking about becoming a patron of Post Show Recaps, also make sure with a new season of Star Trek coming your way in Star Trek coverage subsequently, uh, be sure to subscribe to our Star Trek only feed at postshowrecaps.com slash Star Trek. Uh, though you want to check out all the other Post Show Recap stuff as well. But if you're there and you want to leave us a nice, friendly, helpful, nice review, that is always very appreciative. 
Yeah, just be nice. You can you can leave a negative review, but be nice. Yeah, exactly. Like niceness. You know what? Star Trek imagines a world where people can be firm but nice. Be that future that Gene Roddenberry wanted to see. Yeah, it, it's true. Like you can you can go full Klingon. You can say we are a podcast without honor and we're a bunch of worthless pataks. You could do that, or you could just embody the values of the Federation. Today is a good day to be kind. Yes. It's, every day is a good day to be kind. I Mike. agree. I agree. <laughs> All right. So I think that's that about wraps it up for us, Mike. Um, I also want to throw out if you're if you're new to the post show recaps nation and you are also a fan of The Walking Dead, mm. um, you may want to check out the coverage that I'm hosting with Josh Wiggler, uh, which obviously there's no more Walking Dead for the foreseeable future. But we do have uh, coverage of both Fear the Walking Dead and Walking Dead World Beyond, and we do not take ourselves very seriously. And if that's where you're at with the franchise, please feel free to join us. I don't even know if you need to watch the show, but you certainly you certainly can because we're going to and we're going to tell you everything that happens. So I think that's about it for me. Anything else you want to tell the listeners, Mike? No, I mean, I'm excited to check this out. Just so you know, Jess and I plan on recording these over the weekend every week, uh, posting probably on Sundays or Mondays. If you want to send us your thoughts on stuff, you can do so. Reach out to us on social media. Jess is at Haymaker Hattie. I'm at a Mike Bloom type, or you can go into that lovely poster recap discord to give your own thoughts. But we're going to be here for the next 13 weeks to talk about everything Star Trek Discovery, and I could not be more excited. It's going to be an absolute blast, Mike, um, just like the blast that comes out of your phaser rifle. Um, <laughs> stun to stun or to kill? Um, I think we're killing it. All right. Honestly. All right. I like it. Stunning. Yes, it, we're absolutely stunning, and we're killing it. It's both, really. It's the best of both There worlds. we go. Amazing. So – Perfect. Yep. I <laughs> shut it down. All right. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Live long and prosper. We'll see you next week. <laughs>